Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a conversation between Jake McAtee, host of Canon Calls, and Dr. Joe Rigney, author of the new book, Leadership and Emotional Sabotage. Pre-order the book now at EmotionalSabotage.com. All right, howdy. Welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. I'm your host, Jake McAtee, and I have Professor Joe Rigney with me today. Thanks for coming. Glad to be here. It's been a long time. I think I've invited you several times. Yes, right. I've tried to I've, yeah. tr- I've tried to get out of it, but once yeah. I moved to Moscow, <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. it became much more difficult. That's right. So, uh, Joe, you are releasing a new book on leadership. I am. Leadership and emotional sabotage. Yes. It's quite a cover. Yes. I'm sure you Monst- were on top of that. Mon- <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. just my favorite. Yeah, no, yeah. No, yeah. Uh, monsters. Okay. All right. It monsters looks- under the hood. Good. Okay. Uh, why? Can you just get into why did you write this book this year? Yeah. So um, it's been a, a book that's been sort of percolating for probably a decade. Okay. Uh, back in the days, I was teaching a leadership class at Bethlehem College. You took that class. I was in there. Uh, and we're reading Edwin Friedman's Failure of Nerve trying to kind of Christianize uh, how much can we plunder these Egyptians yeah. or I guess plunder the, uh, he's Jewish. So plunder this Jewish guy for insights about leadership. not popular. Um, right. So, uh, so we're, we're plundering that. Um, and so it's just kind of been percolating. And then I think, um, from 2020 on, I mean, it, it became more and more relevant 2014, 2016, 2020. And now at this point, you know, the basic premise of Friedman's book written in the nineties was we live in an anxious, agitated, angsty society. It's just in the air. There's a crackle. It's going to blow up any moment. There's fumes in the room. And if you light a match, this place is going up. And, uh, and that seems like right. And now, you know, even more so now. And so we all have this sense of everything's coming unglued, everything's unraveling, and nobody seems to be in charge. What do we do? Okay. You know, there's anxiety storms on every corner. Um, And so in 2024, I think now that um, here we are in February, and it seems like we're going to get a repeat of Trump Biden in terms of the political sphere, and then the effects that that has on like communities of divisions in churches and, you know, uh, school, you know, school, you know, if you're a Christian school and you've got people on all over the map and, and just how all of that wider stuff just kind of careens through your community, just, yep. just channeled in there in all these angsty ways. Uh, you've got, um, all these different fights in various, uh, church denominations over things like egalitarianism and feminism. Like, can you have lady pastors or not? So the Southern Baptists this summer are going to be dealing with that and, and how are they going to handle it. Uh, the, the Anglicans just had a big dust up because, um, Calvin Robinson went to a conference and said, Hey, feminism is a cancer and a Trojan horse for all kinds of critical stuff. And women's ordination is the linchpin watershed. And he said it with a bunch of lady priests in the room who walked out. And so these are the sort of situations where everybody feels the tension more broadly. It's in the air. It's not just anxiety is not something just in you. It's like the angst in the room. What, what do you do? How do you lead through that? Um, how do you lead your home? How do you lead in your church? How do you lead in your school, in your business? Um, how do you lead in the wider wider culture, wider world? Um, what does leadership look like when you know that it's going to blow up and you're going to get sabotaged? Okay. Okay. It's. I mean, I I just think it's a it's the it's the timely book for the moment because of how tense everything feels. I mean, even I mean another example right now, right? Um, this crisis at the border 
where you've yeah. got a you've got a showdown between the feds and our home our home country. Yes. Um, you know, the great the great Republic of Texas. The the yeah, the homeland. The homeland. The, yeah. yeah. Yeah, come and take it. Yeah. Uh, come and yeah. cut it. Uh don't mess with it. Right. Um remember the Alamo. And so there's this showdown and everybody feels the tension and it's like what so what kinds of pressures are being leveled against Governor Abbott right now yeah. to what kinds of pressures are being leveled against Biden or whoever to like right. do something about this? And just the tensions are there. And what what does leadership look like in the midst of those tensions? Right. And then you can bring it down to like, you're going to go home this afternoon to your house and you've got tensions with your wife and your kids are frustrated and there's crackle in your home or you're going to go visit the in-laws and you know that's going to be crackly. Sure. And so it's just everywhere you go there, you walk into angst, you walk into anxiety and agitation. What does leadership, what, what does God want you to do? How does he want you to lead through it? Yeah. So I, I'm very excited about the book. I think you have the difficult task of talking about something that everybody almost seems to regularly traffic in enough that it's kind of difficult to even name or talk about. Yep. Um, you know, how many people are just like stand angst is a standard thing I deal with daily. Right. And to know as Christians, it's actually not something, I mean, you can deal with at most, but essentially you're supposed to, that's not supposed to be things that inform how you decide things. You know, it, it, angst though has become this a very common emotion. Yeah. I can have it all the time. Right. So most people walk around and they, how do they talk about their lives? I'm stressed. Right. I'm stressed. What does that mean? It usually means there's all kinds of pressures that are building. And those pressures are not just, I have a long to-do list. That's right. part of it. But it's actually the, uh, the social environment I'm in. What from my social media accounts, you know, sort of online, but also just the that lady at the office or that guy at church yeah. or my kids or the school, or that there's all these sort of expectations. And and sometimes that you think, well, haven't people always had to deal with this? Yes, they have. Sure. But we've built technologies that just channel it, right? Yeah. That amplify it into our, you know, sort of, you know, everybody jokes about into my veins. And it's like, literally, that's what we yes. do. We just, right. we inject anxiety into our veins and it's coming from a wider a community what the bible calls a body right so there's a there's a body and that could be a, a home is a body uh husband wife kids a church is a body a business could be a body a, a, a nation can be a body there's all these different bodies and they're being assaulted there's there's viral infections just kind of coming at you and do you have an immune system what what is a healthy immune system how does it work this was sort of friedman's sort of yeah. favorite analogy in his book was um you, you, the the leader the head is the immune system for the body well how does it function what right. what kind of head do you need in order to deal with with the anxiety that's just going to be pumped into your your system yeah so there's several places I feel like we could go, but it struck me as you were introducing Friedman wrote a failure of nerve in 19, in the nineties. Yeah. Right before he died. What business did he have writing it then? <laughs> yeah, right. You know, how much worse is it now? Yeah. Way worse because, um, he's writing, he's seeing it sort of, you think about this is like the Clinton years. Yeah. And so you can see it sort of, you know, the cable news, all that kind of stuff. Uh, the Iraq war from the early nineties, things like that. Um, Bosnia, I guess, you know, so like, I, I remember then I was a kid in the nineties. I remember yeah. the nineties high school. Um, but that was all pre, pre-smartphone. Right. It was all pre-social. Right. Uh, and so now the, what those technologies didn't introduce something new. 
They just amplified sure. something that was already there. They yeah. just turned it up to 11. And now we live in an age where our technologies, um, even, even more so than in previous generations, just pump angst, agitation, turmoil, conflict, and we're not necessarily built. It's, it's, a, it's a hard thing to endure. And so where do you get the stamina? Where do you get the yeah. endurance necessary to deal with it in every, in every sphere where you're going to face it? Who do you have in mind? Uh, as you write this book, is it, do you have particulars in mind? It's for everyone, but I really want to get to these people. Who, who are those people? Yeah. So I wrote the book, especially for, um, for leaders, for, for men, I would say, but not exclusively men. So I'm thinking of husbands and fathers, um, who deal with it in their home, who ha who just have the, 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 um, the cold tension, the, the cold war type yeah. tensions, yeah. um, or the frustrations and agitations with the teenager or whatever you want to say. So there's, there's a kind of a dad husband target there. Um, church leaders, pastors who have got all of it coming at them from every direction and who, um, you know, are exhausted by it. And, and I, and so there's a whole group there that needs to be sort of encouraged and steeled to deal with it. Uh, schools actually like, so, um, um, classical Christian schools, other sorts of schools, colleges, Christian colleges, where they're dealing with the pressures that are just kind of seeping in from every which direction. And how do they function in their boardrooms? How do they function in their yeah. faculty meetings? Uh, and then, you know, if it gets out wide enough and it affects, you know, some, you know, politician somewhere or something like that, or community leader, or I guess a guy who owns a business and he's just got to deal with office drama, um, that guy um, is trying to figure out how do I, I've got a recurring issue in my office because yeah. of what, yeah. and how do I lead through it? It's that sort of person that I've got who's trying to go, I, I know there's something off and I, and I think God wants me to do something with it, but I'm not sure exactly what is the first and most important thing I need. This book's trying to pinpoint, here's what you got. You got to be something first before you got can it. do anything about it. Okay. I like the leadership market the leadership world, there are like typical authors. John C. Maxwell has been right. dominating forever. Um, it, like I have in mind, like I think I heard somebody one time say that, you know, like I'm a leadership head. I read all the new leadership books yeah. or whatever. Uh, how do you see, like, how does your book fit in that yeah. world? How do you I, differentiate yourself in that world? I read no leadership books okay, ever. So okay. the only leadership book I think I've ever read, actually, maybe I've, I started Maxwell's book one time. Uh, but I don't think I finished it. Uh, I read Friedman's book and was like, this makes a lot of sense to me. Um, the problem was, is it's full with all sorts of evolutionary gobbledygook okay. and, um, and psychological, he uses psychological terminology that's kind of technical and specialized, which certain types of people love to like dig in and figure that out. And other people, it just goes, I don't know what we're talking about. Yeah. And so my, my burden was I want to write a leadership book using Bible, Bible words okay. for like normals. Okay. So normie people who are just yeah. like, I, they, they know the problem. The problem that Friedman's picking up on is a real problem and it's a thing. Um, but they need Bible verses. They need biblical, um, grounding, not, not psychological, um, in order to, in order to address it. So I don't read leadership books. Okay. Uh, I have no idea how this would compare. I do know that there are other guys who are sort of popularizing Friedman who got okay. influenced by Christian guys. Okay. Um, and I haven't read their books. Um, oh, maybe I've read one of them. That's actually, I, I did read one. That okay. was, Cause it was like, oh, it's a Christianized Friedman. And I remember the, A, the vibe I got from it, from those kind of things is typically, Friedman talks a lot about um, non-anxious presence. Okay. Cause it, we're in, it's an anxious society, chronic anxiety everywhere. And so you want to have a non-anxious presence, but the vibe you sometimes get from those books 
the Krishnaized version is basically you need to be serenely passive in the face of disintegration. Everything's falling apart and you need to kind yeah. of like just be cool, man. Just shut down. Yeah. It yeah. just and, and you're just calm and and um and you get the you get the impression that that guy would never look at a combustible situation and actually roll the grenade in there. Okay. But what I'm saying is there are times when you absolutely need to roll the grenade in there. Okay. When you absolutely, like you feel like there's few, you smell them, their fumes are in the room and the, and the faithful thing to do in that moment is light the match. Okay. And, and I think Friedman had this cause he, you know, there's these amazing stories he tells in his book where he's like, I was on this panel one time and, uh, and I made it, made a comment about how, you know, feminist art. Uh, is often propaganda and that's why it's not good art. And like, there's a, a line for people to ask questions. And then like, you can see just like this lady get up and just like run cut in front of line and be like, I am deeply offended that you would attack feminism that way yeah. and all this kind of stuff. And, and Friedman responds by like, I haven't, you, your feelings are hurt, but like, that's no big deal. Like I'm trying to challenge your ideas, deal with it. But then the entire panel gets hijacked because the nice guy who's moderating is like, hey, let's talk about it. Let's talk about what she said. Right. And now the whole thing's like the, the agenda of the event has now been derailed by it. But Friedman was not unafraid to just kind of say, hey, here's the problem, man. Here's the problem, lady. I'm actually going to go straight for the bruise. I'm going to go for yeah. it. And, and so I, you know, so that's a, a contemporary example. You think in the, the Bible, what's an example in the Bible of someone willing to um, go for it? Who's, who sees the, feels the crackle, who knows the tensions and is going to go, I'm not going to back down from this. I'm going to lean into it. And it's like, well, think about Paul and Galatians, right? Peter's sidling away from uh, the, the Gentiles. He's, you know, the, he's not going to eat with them anymore. Why? Pressure. Certain men from James came with some kind of message. And so he's kind of like, I'm caving to the pressure. Barnabas is kind of like following him. Other Jews are following him. And it's just, but you can just feel it's, it's crackle. And so Paul's like, I'm going to walk in there and just oppose him to his face. And, and I know that I can imagine people next to Paul going like, brother, don't be quarrelsome. Yeah. Don't be divisive, right? Yeah. Go to Peter privately. Have you talked to Peter privately? <laughs> yeah, have, yeah. You, yeah, yeah. Have, yeah. You, have you emailed him yet? Right. Um, have you, have you he, shared your concerns? Maybe Peter has the best, like, do you know who he is? Yeah, right. Of all know, time. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah, this, is, this is the guy. Yeah, that is and that Paul, guy. And Paul's like, but he's wrong. Right. And I'm going to bring this sort of submerged conflict into the light and do it. And then Paul does that with Peter. He does it in the book of Acts. Every time he gets up to preach, he, he's looking around. My, one of my favorite stories is when he's sitting there before the, the Sanhedrin and they're all after him. The Pharisees are after him. The Sadducees are after him. And he realizes, oh, there they are. And he goes, I'm here because of the resurrection of the dead. And then just ducks out of the way and lets, the, lets, the, lets it go off. Now they're fighting. Yeah. They're yelling at each other now. Yeah. So he, he, did, he came into that situation and thought, there's crackle in this room, both about me and between them. And yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw something in there to like, make it bigger. Yeah. Why? Because I want to clarify what's really at stake here. So that's good. I think one question would be for you, what is the end goal? Because it's good you brought up other people that maybe utilize Friedman of like, well, is this actually, you want to access something that gets you passively through mm -hmm. uh, tensions or conflict and you want to avoid that. Yeah. Uh, and, and two, everybody could start to feel versus coming of just like, why would you want conflicts yeah. with a brother or yep. so, uh, but it sounds like to me, you're arguing conflict is actually not an issue. Prima facie. Correct. Yeah. So conflict is unavoidable. Okay. The question is, what do you do with it? And so part of what I'm going to commend is when it's private conflict, if it's in your home, if it's with your wife, it's with your kids, then soft answer turns away wrath. 
right? Dial yeah. the thing to be calm, sure. govern yourself, yeah. be under control and like get curious about where this is coming from and be stable enough to lead through it. So there you're trying, you are trying to deescalate. Sure. Don't ramp de-escalate it up. Yeah, de-escalate yeah, yeah. is actually good in that sort of situation. Yeah. But then there are other situations where escalation is what's needed because- yeah. The stakes. It, because the stakes and, and, it's, and it's affecting so much. It's out there and it's just boiling. And what needs to happen is you need to clarify it. So the, so the perfect purpose of the, the provocation, why would you provoke? Why would you go there? Why would you oppose him to his face? Is we need some clarity about what's at stake. And sometimes it's not just what you say that brings the clarity, but it's the reaction to what you say Got that it. brings the clarity. Right. So you need to actually light the match so that other people can see this is a big deal. Look at the reaction. Look at everybody yeah. on fire now, lighting their hair on fire. That actually, yes, that's, I needed you to see that because otherwise it was invisible. Right. It was affecting everything, but it yes. was invisible. Okay. Can you start? So you mentioned at the get-go... This leadership book starts with you, yep. starts with the leader himself. Right. Can you can you get into that? I think Friedman called it differentiation. Yep. So that was one of Friedman's sort of key terms is, uh, you know, a leader is a, a well-differentiated person with a non-anxious presence. Okay. And you just hear that and you're like, I wade through and I go like, oh, he's onto something. Okay. But that's a really uh, wordy, mouthy, technical, psychological way to talk. So yeah. thankfully, the Bible also gives us a word for this feature and it's the word sober-mindedness. Okay. So sober-mindedness I think is is the biblical term for what Friedman calls differentiated, well-differentiated, non-anxious. And what sober-mindedness is is it's um it involves a, a clarity of mind, a stability of soul, and a readiness to act. Those are the sort of the three just summary what is sober-minded? It means you see things clearly, you're stable, you're steady, though there may be a tempest, there may be um, anxiety storms, you're steady through it. You're, yeah. You've got ballast in your boat, you're stable, yeah. and, and, but you're not passive. And so this is important that you're ready to act. You're looking for opportunities to, to actually do something and not simply waiting for things to happen to you. Yeah. It's not Zen Buddhism where you're just trying to serenely endure. Instead, it's you're looking for opportunities. And, uh, and the key thing there is um, the, the sober-mindedness word is the opposite of drunkenness. We think about being sober. Well, it's not here. It's not drunk on alcohol. Yeah. It's drunk on passions. Okay. And so what, what, you know, that language of anxiety that Friedman uses, well, what's the, what's the Bible word for that? Well, it's passions and it's your passions, like the desires, uh, fears, uh, angers, you know, hatreds in your own heart and it's other people's. And so you can get drunk on your passions. Yeah. They can run your life, run your show, other people's passions, right. Can, can run your life. Other yep. people's passions their snap reactions, their frustrations, their angst and anxiety can just kind of bombard you and you get steered by it. You, you avoid certain topics. Uh, you react in certain ways. They, they say something, you blow up. They say something, you shut down. All of these are reactive. And sober-mindedness is the virtue that says, um, the Christian sober-mindedness, anchored in God, anchored in the gospel, anchored in what God has done for me in Christ, I'm going to just steady on through it. And I'm going to be clear. I see what it is. Yeah. I'm going to be stable. I'm not going to react. Yeah. I'm going to respond. And then I'm ready to act uh, at the right time. Yeah. So is it, I, if I remember, I, Friedman like has things like uh, a well-differentiated person has goals. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's very simple. <laughs> there are things that like take him out of this moment. Yes. That he's thinking like, okay, there's something going on at the office. Such and so said this to my boss. Yep. To deal with that. And one of the things he identifies as like being bigger than the situation, like being able to ground yourself outside of it is like, 
I need that house in like five years. Yes. So I'm going to sit tight or, you know, or that being something. Right. And I remember in class, in that leadership class, you talked about at Bethlehem that I took, uh, we really do as Christians have this sort of secret hack. Yes. Like differentiation in Christ yes. that can get you out of that. And it's not like a throwaway Christianese thing. It's like, no, there's real things there. Like, yes. no, I've been forgiven. So I don't have any guilt here. Right. Unless you did something bad. Yep. Uh, there's no hooks for me to like join that. Right. I'll just assess and then, I don't know, act from there, like you're saying. Yes. But I remember that being way more practical to my Christian life as I considered it. Yes. Than I would have imagined, I, I suppose. Yeah. Differentiated. Yes. Right. So, so Friedman would often talk about how differentiation was having goals. And that seems really mundane. But the reality is, um, this is what Christians bring to the table, right? Like the God has given you... Um, both meaning, purpose, forgiveness, uh, and ambition, holy ambition, right? Seek yeah. him, seek him, seek his kingdom, um, yeah. obey in all circumstances. And so one of the ways that I, you know, you can kind of gloss this is a, a good leader basically wakes up in the morning knowing who he is and what's he, what he's about. Yeah. And that, that sort of sense of, I know who I am by the grace of God, I am what I am. Yeah. And I know what I'm about. I'm seeking the kingdom. I'm seeking God's will. I'm seeking to obey him and everything that sort of anchors you in a way that then you don't get lost in the in the anxiety storm that you're walking into the immediate feelings of the person in front of you they matter but they they're not ultimate yep right so you you're actually able good. to you're actually able to care for them well because their feelings are not the most important thing in the in the room that the most important thing as far as they're concerned is what's good for them what's yeah. good for us what's right. good for this family, this, this church, what's, what's ultimately good. And I, I'm tethered to that because I know who I am in Christ and I know what he's called me to do. Yeah. It does seem like it, it being the gospel being what it is, uh, you are concerned about your neighbor. Yes, you are. <laughs> you do love, you should love them. If they're hurt, that's should, it's a, it's a data point at least. Yeah. At the very least. Uh, and so, yeah, it may, it is not surprising. It'd be very, I'd be very curious if like, does a Muslim country deal with this kind of thing? You know, yeah. like basically the gospel has created, uh, like new problems. Yeah. Not, not in a bad way, but I suppose. I do think that some of our, basically in the modern world, our sensitivity to the weak, to the immature, to the hurting, to the suffering, um, is a fruit of the gospel all premier good things. All good things, yeah. um, but they can get hijacked, right? This is the thing that Lewis taught us about everything, which is the greater the good, the greater the evil when it goes bad. Like sure. um, Lucifer was the greatest of the angels. That's why he's the worst. Yeah. Um, and so similarly, a, sure. you know, a, a love for the hurting is great in its place, but right. um, this is where the sober-mindedness thing is important. Sober-mindedness comes first, and that's what enables you to be actually faithful in your compassion, faithful in your care. You can afford to do it because what's guiding, governing, and directing it is not the immediate angst, agitation, and passion of the moment, but is what is good for this person based on what God has said about them and about me and my role. What has God called me to do? That, that governs, and therefore you can actually be compassionate and caring and loving and help them. It's good. Um, the Galatian text comes to mind about whether or not you're qualified to address a brother. Right. Uh, and then also Ren was saying this the other day about Matthew seven, that the issue with the plank in the eye is actually like projection. 
projection could be a real problem. Yes. When you're making a call as a leader, yeah. like this is happening in front of me. What is going on? Yes. Uh, if a plank is in your eye, it sounds it's it doesn't sound as profound, but it it matters because <laughs> if you're projecting, yes, you're actually saying more about yourself in this situation than you are there, and you're no help to anyone. That's right. So yeah, you can't actually do much good for them if you're just one more domino in right. the emotional system. Right. If if the passions are just coursing through and you just get knocked down by their emotions and yours are now being just drug along by the whole thing and everybody's just going. You can't actually help them. The first thing is put yourself in order, have a well-ordered soul governed by the gospel, um, overcoming your passions and then stewarding them in ways that are helpful to, to others. That's, that's what enables you to see clearly. That's why you can see the, the speck in your neighbor's eye because you've removed the log from your own and you're not, you're not projecting, you're not, um, you're not manufacturing. One of the, one of the things, um, here's maybe a virtue that, that we don't think about enough, but it's the virtue of curiosity. Right. And, and by that, I simply mean, um, if you ever find yourself in the situation, you come home, you say something and your wife reacts in a way that surprises you, or your son reacts in a way that surprises you. If you're just one more emotional domino, you just react back. You get offended, you get hurt. You might, you might blow up at them if you're that sort of person, or you might shut down if you're that sort of person, but one way or another, you just, you just reacted to their reaction. Sober-minded people, right. Get the reaction and just like anybody else, but th- because they're steady, it just, it, they're absorbent and then they get curious, like, whoa, whoa where'd that come from? Yep. What's behind it? That's good. And they're able to then ask questions. They're able to pursue the knowledge they lack from a frame of reference that isn't sort of angsty, that isn't driven by, oh, I've done something wrong and I've got to put it right and I'm going to quick fix it. You're not doing that. Instead, you're going, hmm, I'm missing something. Yeah. I need to figure out what that thing is. And, and I have, um, a wide enough angle and a clear enough vision that I could actually see it as opposed to, you know, there's, there's the sort of family where they can't see at all what's going on. They don't see the problem, but you could walk in and in five minutes, just pinpoint it, but they're yeah. blind to it. Why? No, that's because good. they're just pinging off each other. I think too, we, we talked about at the beginning, everyone's so used to trafficking in this Yes, as part of themselves. I think the minute you start to be in a, taking responsibility for yourself, and, th- and hopefully that happens to those around you. They're kind of keying off of you. The minute you walk into a situation or a room where that's thick, yeah, I feel like, yeah, you, you immediately have to get to the bottom of it or else you're, you're like, I can't be in here anymore. You yeah, know? right. We need to actually like bring this up or else. Yes, yeah. You can't just, yeah, you can't just let it simmer on that low boil crackle. Um, you've got to act. You've got to yeah. do something. And and the thing And the thing that you're concerned about is not... Um, well, what will be the consequences? You're concerned. Well, what would, no, what would be faithfulness? What yeah. what would faithfulness look like here? I'm going to do that, and God's God's got the consequences. The results are in His hands. Okay, so let's say uh, that's differentiation. That's sober mindedness. Uh, let's say a leader's gotten a hold of your book. Okay, I'm I've got through the first chapter or second chapter. Yep, I'm onto it. I'm figuring it out myself, taking care of myself, I'm taking responsibility. Uh, and I'm ready to make a call that I know will be uncomfortable. Yes. He's made the call uh-huh. and it was, it felt totally flat. <laughs> no one likes that call. That's the worst. They think that's the worst call of all time. You, in your book, you, you account for this. Yes. You, you tell leaders to budget for that moment. Why? Yeah. Because every act of genuine leadership yep. is going to, it's like Newton's laws. Every act of genuine leadership is going to provoke an equal and opposite Acts of sabotage. Okay. 
So you should expect you, you you're when you're leading, you're budgeting for the sabotage. And sabotage here doesn't, you know, it, it's, you know, oh, that sounds like you're talking about people as terrorists. And it's like, well, and yes, and they can be very nice, well-meaning ones. Yeah. Like I'm not necessarily saying anything about their their deepest heart desires. Sure. I'm saying about something about their habits of their reactions that um, when you touch the sacred cow, you should expect pitchforks. Yeah. And so if you if you if you cease being simply one other domino in the system and instead, well, then you should expect all of the dominoes to start hitting you. Yeah. And and that shouldn't be a surprise. And the key part of the the leadership and where the sober-mindedness sort of begins to dovetail with other biblical virtues like endurance, fortitude, and courage is the willingness to not simply make the call at the beginning, but to endure all of the blowback and to learn from it or or to okay. course correct when necessary. So um, the, the, uh, the reaction is telling you something and you might learn something you didn't know. Yep. And one of the benefits I think of, of thinking about leadership this way is it budgets for your own errors. Yeah. Like you could, in other words, you made a call and it was, it, you thought it was an A plus at first. And then you realized halfway through, oh, this was actually like a C plus. Sure. Okay, great. Budget for that. Yeah. Course correct. Right. No shame. Like right. you didn't know, you're not God. You didn't know everything. Totally. That's fine. Shift gears. Right. Uh, take the feedback, take the influence, take the counsel that other people may be giving you if it's good and wise and shift gears. And now you're not you're not um, wedded to it as though your life depended on it because you're not just- you're above it. Because you're above it. You're, yeah. You've got the emotional distance necessary right. um, and the grounding in the gospel necessary in order to lead well through it. Right. But the only indicator of it being a C plus wasn't only a reaction. Correct. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the negative reaction is not the sign of success or failure. Right. Because if we, if we go Same there- Same with an accelerated reaction too. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Everybody loved it. Who cares? Yeah. Everybody hated it. Yeah. Who cares? Not good. the measure. It's was it good, wise? What did God think about it? Right. Right. So Paul was this like Peter was a success when three thousand believed at Pentecost, and Paul was a success when they ran him out of town. Both he, of them yeah. were faithful. Both of them testified to what they needed to do, and the results were not up to them. Yeah, I think you get into this in the first chapter a bit, um, and and I think, and maybe in Friedman's other works, generation to generation, he gets into it more about um the connectedness i mean you brought up the body but the connectedness that i think is a surprise to most people who see themselves i know pastor wilson talks about an atomized modernity yep. is trained you to think i'm just a bb yep in a bag of bbs yep um but i know in one of friedman's fables and i think you guys are going to be covering it for your fables project with doug yeah uh the bridge yeah it's a very interesting fable that's that starts down a like the connection of two people. But what I remember it as I was studying for this is the person on the person that gets sabotaged mm -hmm. was striking out on a new life. Yes. They're like, I'm, I'm yeah. fixing myself. Yeah. I'm starting better. Right. And next thing you know, they meet a person on the bridge. Yep. Who's got a rope tied around their waist. They hand the, our main character who's turning over his new life. Yep. The other side of the, of the rope. And then jump. And then jumps. Yes. Right. He's like, don't leave me down here. Yeah. Don't drop me. Right. Just stay with me. Yeah. And that's uh, a very interesting thing. I don't know that anybody knows some of what like your book is up to is, do you know humans are connected that way? Right. And, and that they have that kind of hook into you. Yes. And, and that in its proper place, that kind of thing is good and 
Right. It's if one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. Sure. We're all connected. Like that's like that's the reality of the situation. It's more than an exhortation. Exactly. It's not just a little like neat illustration that that the Bible gives. You actually are embedded in a community and it matters. But in an unhealthy one, yeah. the the patterns of operating are manipulative. Yeah. Right? They're, and and so um as soon as you start to get clarity about your own life, about what God wants you to do, about your call, about what what you what God wants you to do, and you strike out that way, you should expect people to sort of pull you back in and say, well, no, no, no. And so and so um one of the uh places I think this shows up a lot is in uh like my premarital counseling. Okay. Right. So here you have um, you know, you have there you have two families coming together. And there's all sorts of habits and patterns that each that the the new husband and the new wife have cultivated over decades in their family of origin. So we I spend a lot of time in premarital counseling just talking about family of origin. I just start asking questions: How does this go? How did your mom treat your dad? How did your dad treat your mom? What happened? How did they deal with conflict? And then have how how's it been going with the two of you? And what you inevitably discover is there are habits of operating that are just like breathing. People don't even know they have them until they encounter someone different. Yeah. And now they're trying to sort of set out on a, here's a new household. Well, the old families then feel the disruption, right? They feel the, the, the new person when they come home for Christmas as an intruder, because now things are different it, yeah. and it, they ought to be different if it was yeah. unhealthy. Right. And so, and so it takes, it takes, um, care for say a new husband to recognize that the patterns that I've been operating in, in my family of origin were actually unhealthy. And I need to start setting a new pattern, not in my family of origin. I don't control that. But in the new one that I'm the head of, my wife and I are going to orient differently. Yeah. And our main thing is form that new nucleus. So one of the things I don't think leaders, leaders fail to realize that if they, if they get healthy, if they get grounded, if they get sober-minded and they start to lead and they haven't been, you're going to lose people. Like you're going, you're just going to, there's going to be people who you, you can say, Hey, everybody, we're all going to go. But what you can't do is make, sometimes the pressure that's put on leader is a leader is, Hey, we need you to lead us into a new future. We're stuck. Lead us into a new future, but don't lose anybody. Not possible. Not possible. Yeah. And you've got to be willing to do it. And, and what you're doing when you do it, you, you think, Oh, look at all we're losing. No, you should be thinking, look at what you're gaining. You're gaining health. You're gaining um, godliness, you're, you're gaining stability as the new nucleus of the folks who are going, we're following that guy. We're with him. Um, that, that new health thing will actually in the long run be more fruitful, more potent, more, um, you know, it'll be more sustainable. Um, it'll be good for everybody if you can actually get over that hump, but it's really hard to get over that hump. Nerve, chutzpah, what do you call it? Yeah, what is, what is yeah. required? Yeah. Like, so um, the courage would be the sort of one biblical word for it, fortitude, endurance. Uh, Friedman calls it nerve. You do have to have this sort of nerve, this, this uh, you know, stand firm in the evil day. Don't, um, don't buckle. Don't go weak in the, you know, strengthen weak hands and feeble knees. That sort of exhortation is what you need to hear and need to practice. Yeah, it seems like there could be a lot of people who got into leadership um, church leadership or otherwise, uh, that there are different aspects they really enjoy. I mm -hmm. love teaching. I love, I love just being enjoyed. Like I like yeah. being around people and right. I like sharing things that I enjoy. And then these sorts of things may not be like, oh, I'm not enjoying this as much. <laughs> yeah. This is the part that's hard. Yeah. And, and, and like, if it was a shock to learn about how people are connected, you know, leaders, it seems like leaders, for sure, have no option, but you must study people. 
Yes, you have to. So when um you, the when the Bible says uh, to husbands, live with your wife in an understanding way, showing honor to her as a weaker vessel, that isn't just like a restricted. That's an application of a larger principle to the mar- to the marriage relationship. But the idea is, you're the head. You need to live with your body, the wife, according to knowledge, which means you need to keep in mind things that you know about her from the word. Okay, she's, she is the weaker vessel. God built her differently than you. You've got a budget for that. And then there's things that you don't know, like about her particularly, that you've got to learn. Sure. Okay. Similarly, for a pastor in a congregation, right? For a, uh, a business owner and his employees, for um, a, a, a school and the kids, like all of these places are, are places where um, leaders must be dialed in without being sucked in. Okay, so you've you've got to be able to be curious, compassionate, yeah. um, learning, growing, getting according whatever in an understanding way means. You've got to be doing that without letting that run the ship, without letting it steer you, without letting it it be the thing that that governs all the decisions. So don't rock that boat, don't upset that person. Um, when that takes root, when that that um, th- then you're you're not the leader anymore, and it'll just get worse. Because once people realize, oh, he's got a big steering wheel on his back, all we have to do is threaten this, then they will they will use it. Yeah, yeah, it yeah, it's a uh, anybody that's just waking up in 2024 or did in 2020, but you are required not to sin. <laughs> yeah, that's expectation. If you are without sin, enduring someone else's dissatisfaction. Yes. If you're not, if you haven't done it before, right. maybe hard. Yes. Because yeah. I have a loved one, right? Like it's, yeah. it's not a joke t- or it's not a funny joke. Right. The, the, yeah. That one of the interesting things. So I think um, some leaders are willing to be hated by people far away from them. Yeah. You know, Anon's on the internet. Sure. Um, they're, you know, they know well, the words, well, the world's going to hate us. So yeah. if somebody out there expresses that hatred, yeah. then they they know how to deal with it. Yeah. They've, they, they've budgeted for it. Yeah. The pressure that they haven't budgeted for is when that thing out there yeah. begins to work its way in first to um, a church across town and then from that church, which, which you don't care about because they're compromised, yeah. then to the guy that your pastor's friends with that pastor, your, your fellow pastor's friends with that pastor. And so they there's a thing there. And then that guy's wife knows that person. And then, so now it's being channeled. And so it's the pressure from th- those closest to you. Yep. Um, the dissatisfaction and when it's, and when it's often couched in a very reasonable way, like, Hey, I think you totally had a point, but you do understand that you hurt their feelings. And it's like, yes, I, I do. I understand that I did it, but I didn't sin. Well, but you know, if, if they apologize, will you apologize? And you get into sort of the negotiated apologies, right? Where you, if you say you're sorry, I'll say, I'm sorry. And it's like, and it's all dishonest. It's peace, peace where there is no peace. The, the ability to endure that sort of displeasure yeah. is, is something that only the grace of God can do because you've got, I'm trying to please God, not man. That's yeah. Paul's sort of fundamental defense of his ministry is you think I'm trying to please man. If I was trying to please man, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. Right. I've got to please my master, not, and you're not the master. It's good. Joe, thank you so much. Uh, if anything, hopefully this conversation has demonstrated how bad everybody needs it. Yeah, that's hopefully so. Okay. Thanks, Joe. Yep. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to pre-order Dr. Joe Rigney's book, Leadership and Emotional Sabotage at EmotionalSabotage.com. Mm-hmm.